Welcome to the Advocacy Podcast, Journeys to Excellence. We speak with Queen's Counsel, trial lawyers and judges from around the world about how they excel in the courtroom. Please subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and visit us for additional resources at theadvocacypodcast.com. I'm your host, BB Badejo, and in this episode, we're joined by Carl Heaton QC. Carl is the Director for Public Prosecutions in Queensland, Australia, and is renowned for his success in cases, including those where the defendant declines to give evidence. Carl shares his tips for making examination-in-chief or direct examination, engaging, and making your closing argument as compelling as possible. Hello, Carl. Hello. Do you want to tell us just a little bit about yourself, please? I was admitted as a barrister in October of 1990. Um, I started working in January of 89, so about two years before I was admitted, I started working in the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions and was then introduced to the wild world of criminal law. I hadn't necessarily made any particular or had any particular ambitions to practicing in crime when I was studying law, but my first experiences of going off to court and watching criminal trials was really what got me very interested in the whole scene of criminal law. So I started doing my own advocacy work in the early 90s. In fact, I was very lucky, I think, to have been in a role which saw me every day doing bail applications in the chamber's jurisdiction of our Supreme Court. So as a very young lawyer and as a brand new advocate, I was every day in court and making submissions on why people should or shouldn't be released on bail and advocating for conditions and the like. And I saw that as being an invaluable training ground for becoming an advocate. I started doing trials in about 1992 and then began a process of ever-increasing complexity and seriousness of the trials that I was doing. In fact, I just saw in the paper earlier this week that my very first murder trial, the accused has been released after 17 years and he was deported to New Zealand. So I felt then somewhat older that the people that I prosecuted for murder are now being released from custody. Wow. So I then was working for 18 years at the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions and then essentially I wanted to see what else you could do with a law degree. I'd only ever done prosecution work. And so I accepted an invitation to go and work at Legal Aid as the Deputy Public Defender. And that began the next 10 years of my working at Legal Aid and then defending people. So using the skills that I developed as an advocate for the Crown, but then flipping it and using my skills to unravel the case rather than build one. And lots of people asked me how I can defend people that are charged with serious offences. And of course, many of the matters that I was doing were serious 
you know, violent offences, murders and serious sexual offences. But I saw it as being really just an intellectual exercise. It was an exercise of examining the evidence and finding the argument, developing your case theory and then, you know, exposing the weaknesses if there were any. So I saw it as being really just another expression of, um, of my advocacy. But eventually after 10 years, I, I guess I got sick of the same old instructions and the expectations of clients to be getting them off murder charges and so um, I then went back to the Crown as the Deputy Director of Public Prosecutions in 2016 and I have stayed there and in June this year I was appointed as the Director. So it wasn't necessarily something that I set out to do but I've certainly made the most of the opportunities that have come my way throughout my career and I've enjoyed some considerable success in the opportunities that I've had that have put me in good stead, really. So I'm pleased now to be the Director of Public Prosecutions for Queensland and I'm, I now occupy an office that our very first Director also occupied when I first started in the, um, in the office in 1989. I've remodelled, but it is the same office. <laughs> I'm sure you have. And of course, congratulations yeah, on your you. appointment. Um, you've gone through what seems to be quite a, a well-rounded journey, really, to getting to where you are now. But looking back at it, how would you describe yourself as a younger advocate? And how would you describe yourself now? What are the differences? As a young advocate, I was a little sort of anxious about the process of the trial. I was much more concerned about making sure I got the process right so that the advocacy probably then became a little secondary. In fact, when teaching advocacy, I've often said that much of what we do, we do because we've seen other people do it and nobody yelled. And I think that's kind of how I found my way through those early um, experiences of, of doing trials. I'd seen prosecutors particularly, but advocates generally doing trials. I'd seen how other people did it. And, and I set out trying to emulate that and navigate successfully through the trial. But as I got older, well, then I, and more experienced, well, then I realised that the advocacy side of things is much, or is as much of importance as the process side of things. And so then I set about not just navigating successfully through trials, but trying to use my advocacy to navigate through trials successfully, if you appreciate the difference. So as I gained more experience, I was able to bring more of my own personality, more of my own style, unshackle myself from what I had seen of other people and bring my own, my own style and my own personality to my advocacy, which is again a thing that I think is very important that um, young advocates be reminded that they don't have to emulate some archetypal barrister, that it's important, particularly when you're dealing with a jury, it's important that you bring your own personality to your advocacy style because 
otherwise a jury is going to be able to see through you. If, if it appears as though you're acting, if it appears as though you're trying to be something that you're not, you'll lose credibility in the eyes of the jury. And if you lose credibility, well then your ability to persuade will be significantly reduced. You've answered what was going to be my next question, which was, when you saw something that you really liked, did you make it your own? And the answer obviously is, is yes, you found your own voice. Yeah. But I suppose the follow-on question from that is, how did you make it your own? Because I think for some people, having heard that Eminent Silk say something that sounded absolutely amazing and trying to copy it yourself, but it doesn't quite work, there's a disconnect. Mm. Mm. I suppose it's that, how do you make it your own? I think recognizing that it is important that you be yourself in front of the jury and you might see something that you find impressive but you've got to analyze it as to whether or not it is compatible with who you are as an advocate your personality and the way you communicate don't just steal some turn of phrase or some particular affectation in court if it's not going to suit you. I remember now many years ago, and in a regional town, there was a, a barrister who was, perhaps some might unkindly describe as being a little bit pompous. And he was renowned for beginning what was, I guess, going to be a submission which was difficult to sell to the judge. And he would say in this big pompous voice, and I may now be on the precipice of a bold submission, Your Honour. And it was, I suppose as a young advocate, it sort of seemed all a little bit Rumpolian and so it was impressive, but, you know, just purely from a theatrical point of view. But if you analyse it from a persuasive point of view, um, I think your assessment of it is different. And if you look and I certainly encourage young advocates and indeed more experienced advocates to always be watching other advocates and see what they do and if you find something is persuasive analyze why it is persuasive and then assess whether or not you can import that into your own advocacy style. And were there any particular steps that you took and the reason why I ask is for me what my journey has been was initially reading books on advocacy then I started going on residential courses which were initially incredibly brutal <laughs> maybe because I was doing a lot of things that were wrong but as I continue going on them I really could see the improvement in my advocacy so I see courses and reading as the steps that I took but what about you were you just naturally just that gifted Carl? <laughs> I wish that were true and uh, as I look at, you know, young advocates now and the things that they're doing that probably undermine their ability to persuade, and I know that I was doing them as well. There is a journey that we all, I guess, must go on in order to develop our skills. But the one sure way, and you've discovered this yourself, the one sure way to speed that process up is to do advocacy workshops, to, to study advocacy, to read the books, to watch other advocates, to watch other people. Every, even on television and advertising, you know, there'll be elements of advocacy at play everywhere you look. And it's about taking note of, 
of that and again importing it into into your own style and developing those the skills by practice and practice and practice i was certainly a student of advocacy workshops for many years before i then started teaching but I have confessed a number of times to students that I'm a bit of a fraud as a teacher because I go along to these workshops and I'm learning every time. Every workshop that we do, I'm learning as well. I'm learning by practicing, by analyzing what others are doing and by trying to think mostly on my feet as to how it might be done differently. And so that's me developing my skills. So thank you to all the students for um, letting me learn my craft while you're hopefully learning yours as well. I should mention that of course that is where we met. It was the Australian Bar Association's Advanced Advocacy Workshop in Melbourne in 2020 and of course you trained me <laughs> as well and what I was yes. particularly struck by was the way that you could always deconstruct my advocacy and those of my peers as well. So not only could we see what we were not doing exa exactly right, and I don't think it's a matter of right or wrong, actually. Perhaps I should say what was not as effective as it could be, but you were always able to relate it to our case theory or whatever our closing speech was going to be. So I thought that was really amazing and you really kept me on my toes. <laughs> well, this might be of some comfort to you, but the same things that the people do the same things. I, I'm hesitant to use the phrase make the same mistakes because as you've said it's not about right or wrong it's about what is more or less persuasive but it's we see the same things that can be the focus of work and improvement and so that's why I'm, I'm absolutely confident that whilst I can't remember specifically because I was too traumatised and racked with anxiety, mostly through the early stages of my career. But I'm certain that I did those things as well. And I was the beneficiary of teachers that pulled me up on things that I could do better as well. So it's it comes with practice. What you saw of the teachers at the advocacy course is the result of practice. And you can't get by without doing it. Given the amount of experience and also practice <laughs> that you have had, um, I was just wondering if there's a unique, maybe not unique, but if there's a particular skill that you think that you have developed for yourself that helps you succeed and be very persuasive in court. What I think has helped me to have some success is that I recognise that every single moment that you're in the courtroom is an opportunity to persuade. So I'm meticulous about how I appear, how I behave in the courtroom, even if the court's not actually sitting, but if the jury have been brought in and we're waiting for the judge. I'm meticulous about keeping the bar table at least around me, organised, so that it communicates, I think, to the jury that I'm on top of everything, that I'm organised, that I'm structured, that they can rely on me as an advocate to guide them along the path to the ultimate conclusion, which is the correct conclusion, not just the one that I want, but the correct conclusion. 
and taking the opportunity at every every step of the process of the trial. For example, at the beginning, I'm sure it's the same in the UK, but at the beginning of a trial, the prosecutor traditionally will read out the list of the names of the witnesses that will be called during the trial, so that if any member of the jury knows anything about that witness, so that they may not be able to be impartial in the trial, they can say so and they can be excused. Well, I see that as being yet another opportunity and indeed a very early opportunity to start bringing the jury into the story of the case. So rather than just reading out a list of names, I say something about each of them. You'll hear from so-and-so. She is the complainant in this matter. You'll also hear from her sister who lives in the house with her and the rest of her family. There's her father. You know, I approach it like that to sort of bring the jury into the story that they're about to become intimately involved in. Every single opportunity throughout the course of a trial I see as being an opportunity to persuade and I take it and I try to use it to my advantage. So yeah, that's probably something that I've learnt. I'm sure I didn't do that very well at the beginning, but it's something that I've I've learnt to capitalise on a lot more now. That brings us very nicely to the focus of um, the podcast, which is examination in chief and speeches, because of course, as a prosecutor, you don't necessarily get the opportunity to um, cross-examine a defendant if they decide they're not going to give evidence. And you are the prime storyteller. You're paving the way for the jury to hear what you've got to say and also whether or not they trust you and your words. And so I thought that would be a great start really for us to discuss, especially as cross-examination tends to be the sexy thing that people think about in court and those, you know, moments, you can't handle the truth, stuff that never actually happens. <laughs> yes, that's right. I've never seen it. <laughs> I have never seen that in my life either. Nobody's ever confessed under my cross-examination. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Exactly. It's so rare. So if we start first with examination in chief and for our American listeners, that's direct examination. And just looking at that, I thought we could start first with just talking about how to prepare your witnesses, because obviously you've done your case analysis, your case prep, but you're reliant on these people who often absolutely frightened, don't know what's to expect. How do you prepare your lay witnesses? Do you meet them in advance, for example? I never call a witness that I haven't at least met and said hello and introduced myself to beforehand. Some witnesses have fairly innocuous evidence to give and yet I still make sure that I go and introduce myself and just say hello to them. The benefit of that is you get a sense very quickly as to how relaxed or otherwise they are, but also how they communicate and how they respond to questions and just interaction with another person. I've certainly learnt over the years that not everybody is very good at actually telling a story of an event. And so some people need to be guided much more carefully and much more thoroughly through their story. Others 
are happy to just sit there and, and will just run off at the mouth and tell you everything they know. So it's important, I think, to always speak to your witnesses beforehand. The more important the witness, of course, the more time you'd want to spend with them and just going through with them the, the evidence that you intend to call. It helps, I think, to settle their nerves and anxiety as well in that it helps them to focus on what the evidence is that's important for the trial. I think much of their anxiety is the fear of the unknown and the fear that they'll be asked some question that they, that they don't know the answer to that's going to then you know, ruin the whole case. Of course, if they don't know the answer to a question, it's unlikely to ever ruin the whole case but they don't appreciate that. And so I never call a witness that I haven't spoken to first. That means that I'm often very busy before, at lunchtime and after court. And it also means that from time to time I ask witnesses to wait around all day until I'm able to speak to them in the afternoon, even if it's clear they're not going to get on to give their evidence that day. And I'll confess that not all of my colleagues are of that same view. Some people are happy, it seems, to call witnesses without knowing how they are. But I think in terms of bearing in mind that a, a trial is a purposive exercise designed to achieve the outcome that you are planning for, it's not an opportunity to inquire, it's not an investigation, and so when I call a witness, I have a very clear plan in mind as to what I'm going to get from that witness, what evidence I'm going to get. I get that evidence out of the witness in the most persuasive way that I can, and then I sit down. I completely agree, having experienced the difference <laughs> between meeting the witnesses, allaying any of their concerns, which was literally sometimes as simple as I don't know how to connect to a virtual hearing or what do I need to press? Do I need to download anything? What do I call the judge? Do I need to look at the judge? And just investing that time and getting rid of those questions meant that they were settled in that respect and could focus on their, their evidence. But I also got a sense of even the order <laughs> that I wanted to go put them in because I thought, oh, you're not going first. If you go first, it might not work so well for me. So I'm going to put you towards the end and I'm going to have a very strong person in the beginning. Is that the sort of thing that you also experience when you meet witnesses? Yes, absolutely. In fact, you've reminded me of a recent experience that I had where there was a witness who was related to the accused who was charged with murder. So there was some fairly high stakes at play and he was being somewhat uncooperative and he hadn't come in time for me to have a conference with him before we'd started in court. But he was traveling whilst we were going through the um, other evidence. And so I had to shuffle my order a little bit to accommodate the fact that he hadn't arrived yet, but I was keen to get him in because we're up to that part of the story. And we can perhaps talk about that in terms of relating your evidence in chief to your opening address or your speeches as you've referred. But um, I was keen to get him to get him in and to and to get his evidence. And then when I got news that he had arrived and we were still in court, but I asked for time out, I asked for a short adjournment so that I could go and speak to him 
before I called him and my intention was to call him next. And when I spoke to him, it was very clear that he had traveled a long way to be there. He was incredibly tired. He was somewhat anxious. It was clear to me that there was probably some mental health maybe issues, maybe just anxiety or something like that that was operating for him so that it was clear to me that he was not going to be a very persuasive witness. And so I made that decision then that I wouldn't call him then, that I would let him go to the motel, that he could have a shower, he could calm down, and I would call him later in the trial. And I'm pleased to have taken that opportunity. And again, it just, I think, reinforces, at least to my mind, that it is vital to speak to witnesses before you call them. Otherwise, I'd have just called him and it may have been a, a disaster for us. Do you think that's also down to your experience? Because I can imagine for lawyers that aren't as experienced as you, just A, the thought of asking for a break so that you could speak to the witness as opposed to, oh, he's here, let's just get him on. And then B, the fact that you decided, okay, he's he's not going to go on now, it's, it's not going to work. Is that because of your experience and your confidence that you can ask for that, whereas other people might not do that and it might not work so well? Are you suggesting that not everybody gets what they ask for in court <laughs> from the judges? Aren't the judges always happy to accommodate us? I think, yeah, there is maybe a bit of that. You know, maybe I do get more from judges because of my experience. But... I think it, there are still techniques that even young advocates who maybe don't have the confidence, firstly, I would say, have the confidence. If the request is a reasonable one, and in my experience at least, in all but the most cranky of judges, and they do exist, I'll accept, but in all but the most cranky of judges, they'll give you some time because they appreciate that there's a lot going on in order to make the trial in court appear as though everything's running smoothly. But if you're not confident enough to ask for time and you've got a witness like that who has arrived, who, bearing in mind, he was the brother of the, of the accused, so I guess I was a little anxious about how he might be as a witness. And so in a situation like that, if it's important to your case, if the evidence is important to your case, well, maybe the better option is to just make the call to continue the trial with other witnesses and get through till the next break, the next recess in the court, and then take that opportunity to speak to the witness. It's probably better that you present your evidence a little out of order rather than calling a witness, particularly one that might be a bit um, difficult. So moving on to the questions that you would be asking. Firstly, with examination in chief, is it me or is it much harder than it looks? I get that a lot, but I don't know. I don't find it hard, but then my experience, you know, I started out at the Crown, so Throughout my career, I've done much, much more evidence-in-chief than I have cross-examination. I'm pleased for the 10 years that I did defending for the opportunity to develop my skills as a cross-examiner, but 
So I have much more confidence now if an accused does get into the box and give evidence. But if we just think of evidence in chief as the opportunity to get the witness to tell the story, it must surely demystify some of it. I think people just get a bit caught up in this need to not ask leading questions and how do you how do you get started without asking leading questions and my advice always is that it's okay to ask some leading questions to focus the witness on the area that you want them to start talking about and so it's okay to just take them to do you remember Saturday afternoon the 16th of March yes I do uh, on that day, were you at home? Yes, I was. So those are leading questions, but it's bringing the witness to the scene that you then want them to talk about. Did your father come home during that afternoon? Yes, he did. All right, tell us what happened when he got home. And that might be how you then lead into a non-leading question that gives then the witness the opportunity to tell their story. Bearing in mind that the rule about leading and non-leading questions in evidence in chief is, whilst it's perhaps one of those formal process requirements of the trial, it also means that if a witness is given the opportunity to tell the story themselves in their own words, well then it will be more persuasive. And that of course is the objective. So I don't understand it when people say that evidence in chief is more difficult. I think it's just that they do less of it. And it probably just, you know, people at Legal Aid whose background and whose experience was primarily in cross-examining were very comfortable with, with cross-examination, whereas my prosecutor colleagues are racked with anxiety at the prospect of an accused getting in the box and having to, um, and them having to cross-examine the accused. So I think can I say it just comes down to practice? <laughs> <laughs> you can say that, and absolutely, it's, it's really true. And just picking up on what you were saying, I was just wondering if you could identify, given your experience and also as an advocate, but also as a trainer, um, what mistakes do you see junior lawyers making and how can that be remedied? And I'd also ask the same question about more senior lawyers. It may be the same. But I was just wondering if there's something that you had noticed that one group did. One mistake that I see a lot is that advocates, junior, senior, they have their statement of the witness and they start at the beginning and they take the witness through the statement. Bearing in mind that the statement has been prepared usually by a police officer, invariably without a full appreciation of what the whole brief looks like. You know, a statement of a particular witness might be taken early in the investigation. And so starting at the beginning of a statement and leading a witness through in, some, in the chronology of the statement isn't always the best way to get the story of that witness. And so I always encourage uh, advocates to think of how they want to present the evidence of that particular witness in the best way that tells the story of 
that witness, but in the context of the story that you have established of the trial. You've brought the jury in through your opening address. You've brought the jury into the story of this trial, of these events. And so why would you then abandon that story when leading evidence in chief? It's just as important, it seems to me at least, to continue that theme, that's the story that you've established in the way that you lead evidence in chief. Leading on from that, I did wonder how you can make the witness as engaging and interesting as possible, as in what they have to say as engaging and interesting in terms of your questions. And I had seen advice, which was tell the witness it's like telling a story that they watched on the TV. And I wasn't sure whether or not that was good advice. So I thought I'd ask you about it. How do you bring it to life? Well, some people you just can't liven up. Some people are just dull witnesses. But you will have spoken to that witness before you called them, and hopefully you might have even spoken to that witness before you opened. So part of your opening might include some reference to the fact that that witness might be giving very dry evidence. I called an accountant once who is actually a really lovely fellow um, but he was giving evidence by reference to Excel spreadsheets and financial transactions and following money that went all around the world before it ended up in a bank account that ultimately we were proving was controlled by the accused. And he's a really lovely fellow, and yet when he was describing the spreadsheets and this movement of money, he could not have made it less interesting. But I guess that's just accountants, no offence. But I told the jury beforehand, you know, that was going to be a part of the trial. The charge was money laundering. So we're going to have to get into that evidence and just prepared them for it. I guess the other advice that I can offer is that if the witness is boring, well, don't you be. You be the interesting person in this story, within bounds, of course, and there's a limit on what you can do, but don't lose your enthusiasm or your energy and I can share a, um, a story that illustrates that point as well and that a friend of mine came into court one um, day shortly before we were journeying for lunch we were going for lunch and and so she saw me leading some evidence in chief from a young girl and and then this friend said to me afterwards without my asking mind you but she said it looks like you've done it a thousand times she didn't necessarily mean it as being criticism, but I did see the criticism in it because I thought if I look like I've done it a thousand times, well, then I'm not engaged in the story that this little girl was telling. And if I'm not engaged in it, well, then I'm not letting the jury be engaged in it as well. So I really took that on board and, you know, was then very much conscious of the need to still at least appear as though I am engaged and as interested in the answers that the witness might give as the jury will be. So yeah, that was a very valuable lesson that she didn't mean to give to me, but I was very pleased. <laughs> and also an interesting one, I'd never thought about that at all, as in how you receive the information and engaging in that, because of course it is a conversation. Absolutely. You mentioned earlier about 
you know, the analogy with telling a story like you would see on the television. I don't use that analogy, but I do tell people, or I ask them, how would you tell this story if you were at dinner the night before the trial with some friends? And the friend said to you, what are you working on at the moment? And, and you said, oh, I'm doing a trial tomorrow. Oh, what's it about? Like, how would you tell the story of what your trial is about to your friends? And there's no reason why you can't use that same technique, the same way that you would explain the story to your friends when you're talking to the jury. And the same goes for witnesses. You know, you've got to, they're going to be anxious because they're unfamiliar with the environment, of course. They're going to feel that they need to be formal because it's a courtroom and people think that there's a, a formality. There is a formality with the courtroom and there needs to be, but that doesn't mean that they can't still relax to the best of their ability and tell the story as they would if they were telling it to a friend of theirs at dinner. I'm definitely going to take that on. <laughs> it's my next. Consider it yours. <laughs> it's fine, yay. <laughs> and you spoke earlier about questions, leading and non-leading questions. We know non-leading questions can be the who, what, where, how. Yes. But one thing that I was wondering about was the question, what happened next? Because I've banned myself from saying that because for me, I know it's when I'm being lazy, when I can't figure out how to get out particular parts of information, I know my default position is what happened next. And I see that as really an indicator that my question just isn't tight enough or focused enough on my theory. And I'm not saying no one should ever use it, but I know for me, when I say that, there's something that went wrong <laughs> in terms of my question preparation. What do you think about people saying, well, what happened next and what happened next? Okay, well, that's a different question. Saying what happened next and what happened next and what happened next probably doesn't tell the story, doesn't extract the story in the most persuasive way. And it does perhaps say that you haven't prepared as well as you might have for the story to be told. Generally, I think it's important to mix up the style of your questions because to do so does, I think, keep the jury engaged and keep them more focused on what's unfolding if there's a variety of styles of questions when they're being asked. So in that sense, then, I don't think it's a bad thing to every now and again say and what happened next if you get to a part of the story where you do want every detail you do want to know what happened next and it would be natural for an inquiring mind to wonder what happened next so it's a natural question but just so long as it is a natural question in the context of the story that's unfolding and not just a lazy form of advocacy so just moving on to um, witnesses now, because obviously there's many different types of witnesses as there are people. I was wondering if you had any techniques for particular kinds. So for example, the witness that doesn't want to be there, they're reluctant and slightly hostile, not too hostile where you'd make an application to cross-examine them, for example, but they're slightly hostile to you. How do you, what techniques do you use to elicit the information through your questions? That's the sort of witness that I describe. You need to employ the three gets. You get them in, you get the evidence you want, and you get them out. You don't want them hanging around. And 
in order to be able to do that, you need to confer with them beforehand and during the conference, focus them on what is actually important from their evidence and then make sure in your questioning that it's as tight as it can be within the scope of leading and non-leading questions, as tight as it can be to get the information that you need from them and then just sit down. They're perhaps the most dangerous witnesses because they can, you know, potentially undermine the good work that you're doing otherwise in the trial. So, yeah, that'd be my advice. Have them in there only for what they're absolutely required for and then get them out. And perhaps make an assessment as to how vital their evidence is. If they're truly going to be uncooperative and and truly, you know, risk undermining other evidence will then make a value judgment as to whether or not that risk is worth actually calling them. Of course, having regard always to your ethical duties and your obligation to call relevant witnesses and that sort of thing, but if you've got all of that under control and this is just about you, will then make that assessment as to whether or not they're actually necessary. As you know, my specialty is family, so we have a lot of emotive subjects and issues that come up and witnesses that get distressed and they cry. Are there any techniques that you employ when you have distressed witnesses? Firstly, so long as the distress is appropriate to the circumstances, I think it can be a very compelling and persuasive feature of a person's story. And if it is that, it might be worthwhile trying to push on a bit if it's an important and crucial part of the story perhaps you know if they're showing signs of emotion well then it might be the critical part of the story so you might want to maybe pause but then push on to try and get the story out but sometimes witnesses do just become quite upset and sobbing and then it's there's little you can do but offer them an opportunity for a break if they're able to articulate that to the judge or you ask on their behalf your honor can we just have five minutes for the witness to compose herself and again in my experience i've not seen a judge refuse if they have a crying witness in the courtroom they're generally happy to accommodate but i think it's good it's it's emotion that is appropriate to the circumstances is is a very persuasive feature of a story. And bearing in mind that if credibility is the issue in your trial, well then a jury will be looking for those signs of human emotion that would be appropriate to the story and the experience that they were describing. And I certainly encourage witnesses, and from time to time I get asked about that by witnesses, that they think they're going to cry and they don't want to cry, and trying to sort of, you know, reprimand themselves to not cry. And I just unshackle them from that responsibility that if that's their natural response, well, then they just need to do that and we'll deal with it. We can work around it. We can have a break, you know, whatever's necessary in order for them to be able to get the story out in the most persuasive way that they can. My final example of witnesses that might cause a bit of a challenge would be the unlikable (laughs) 
witness there's a bit of an unsavory past who's you know the evidence is crucial for whatever whatever reason is that another example of where the three gets come in <laughs> yeah you have to make that assessment don't you make that call but sometimes they can be great witnesses as well you know they may they may actually communicate in spite of themselves they may actually tell more of the story than they think in a trial I did not long ago, the, it was a murder trial, but the defence case was that there was a viable alternative suspect and that viable alternative suspect was in fact a Crown witness. And he was a bit of a roustabout and he had a chequered past and he was a boxer in a former life and so he had criminal history and you know, offences of violence on his criminal history, relatively minor, but still inconvenient, I suppose, if you're trying to hold up a witness as being a witness of credit and certainly in a violent, uh, where there's allegations of violence. But he was cocky, he was um, objectionable, he was belligerent, but there was a certain sort of likeable rogueness about him I was quite anxious about calling him because he was he was the viable alternative suspect to the defence. So if he behaved badly, well, then he was only going to f fuel their contention that this person is a viable suspect and they would have a doubt, therefore, that the accused in the dock was the one who'd committed the offence of violence. But in the end, I thought he was a great witness. He wasn't the slightest bit interested in being there. He wasn't interested in talking to us much beforehand. But in the end, I think he was a really great witness for us. So my advice might be that look through the rough exterior because you might actually see some gems underneath. That's a really good point. <laughs> and with, of course, we have lay witnesses. We also have professional witnesses so your police officers and so on do you have a do you change your approach with how you deal with professional witnesses in comparison to lay witnesses absolutely i do in the sense that i'm always conscious of the jury and what the jury makes of the witness and so if you've got a professional witness well then you can adopt a much more formal a much more professional tone with them it's a little less conversational if they have scientific or expert evidence to give you can be more formal in the way that you communicate because that's the nature of the evidence that we're getting to some extent you don't have to put them at ease you don't have to build a rapport with them in the same way that you might with a lay witness and so being ever mindful of how your uh, how the evidence is being communicated how it would appear to a jury that ability that that pathos that Aristotle used to talk about, that capacity to empathise with your audience as to what they want from the particular witness and giving them that within the confines of the rules of evidence. So, yeah, with police and with expert witnesses, absolutely, there is a different style of advocacy, a different style of asking questions that's appropriate, as it would be, naturally if you were talking to somebody like that at dinner with friends. <laughs>
And then just moving slightly off the examination in chief slash direct examination, re-examination, is it something to be avoided altogether or do you think that you should do it? Does it depend? What do you think? I've certainly done it and I've done re-examination in a case where the piece of evidence that held the conviction on appeal was elicited during re-examination. And were it not for that question and answer, we very well may have lost the conviction. So I'm not going to say never do it, but I will say it should be used very sparingly. And the reason why that's so is because if you've planned your evidence in chief properly, well then you should have everything that you need from the witness um, and really properly assess the cross-examination and the answers given in, in cross-examination and determine whether or not there really is anything that has been properly undermined. But more importantly, undermined but which can be corrected in re-examination. And I, I guess one example might be if it's apparent that there an answer was given but on a misunderstanding as to what the question in cross-examination was. And so the answer on the record then may appear to be inconsistent with other evidence, whereas in fact you know the truth um, to be different to that. And so that might be an occasion where clarification is genuinely what you're seeking to do rather than trying to make up ground. And I think if in re-examination you're trying to sort of make up some lost ground or perceived lost ground, well then, in my view, the jury will see through that and they'll see somebody who's desperate and it will probably then not have the desired effect in any event. So it can be hard to make that and you might need to sometimes be courageous to actually leave cross-examination where it is. But of course, you've already prepared your closing address. You know what you're going to say about this particular witness and where their evidence fits in the case. You know whatever other evidence there is that might support them or reasons why their evidence would be accepted. And so you really need to bear that in mind, all of those things in mind when you're making that often split second decision as to whether or not it's really worthwhile going there in re-examination. We're going to move away from the questioning of witnesses now and looking at speeches, submissions, addresses, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and you mentioned, of course, when you're preparing your examination in chief that you already have your closing address in mind so you know exactly what you're looking for. I know that when I was at bar school that I was told you do your closing first. That's what we we're all told. I didn't do that for a very long time. <laughs> I still don't always do that to my regret. Um, so at which stage do you prepare both your opening and your closing addresses? I'm going to fall in line and say you need to prepare your closing first. But I understand what you mean, that you, know, you don't always do that. And indeed, I'll confess that I don't, strictly speaking, I don't do that either. But what I do is that I 
analyse the case, I analyse the evidence in terms of what I will ultimately say about it. I may not necessarily write down um, or structure a closing address um, that is a complete work. Like it is something, it's, it's a document that I certainly begin early in my preparation and it is a document that goes through the journey of the trial with me and is added to and rejigged throughout. But the fabric of it, the structure of it, the what I'm going to say about the evidence, what my case theory is and what ultimate conclusion I'm going to ask the jury to draw and the, and the reasons why are certainly, if not crystal clear, they're certainly a long way there as part of my initial preparation and analysis of, of the evidence. And once you've got that under control and you've then worked out what evidence you're going to lead in evidence in chief to support your conclusions and your arguments, well then by that stage you know what your case is. It's then simply a matter of structuring the story to tell the story of your trial in your opening. I guess I vacillate as to what is my favourite part of the trial, the opening or the closing. Sometimes the closing, that for me, you were saying earlier that cross-examination is the sexy part of the trial. I think the closing address probably is for me, but the opening address is almost as if not just as important because that's your opportunity, and particularly, you know, as the Crown Prosecutor, you've got the advantage of being able to connect with the jury right from the beginning. They've just heard, certainly in our jurisdiction, the opening remarks of the judge go for about 45 minutes where the judge explains to them what the onus and standard of proof is and what the course of the trial is going to be and what time lunch is and what time we're going to finish each day and all of that sort of formal stuff about the trial. And it seems to go for an endless period of time. So that when you rise to your feet after all of that and you then get the opportunity to open, I think the jury is sitting there desperate to hear something interesting, to hear something really quite, you know, engaging. And one of the techniques that I tell people is you need a fuck at the beginning. You need something, I'm sorry if I'm not allowed to swear, but there's a point to it. You need something at the beginning that is going to bring the jury into the room. I say you need a fuck at the beginning by analogy. You need something that jars, something that pricks their attention. So I think it's vitally important to give a lot of thought to the opening three or four lines of, of your opening address, what you are going to say that in very short compass has the combined effect of telling the jury very shortly what the trial is about, but in a way that is going to grab their attention and get them excited and interested to hear what's going to come next. It's important to maintain that, I think, throughout the course of your opening as well. And so you've got to mix up your communication styles. And so I'll often be known to say you need a fuck in the middle as well. So you need something that's 
you know, once the attention starts to sort of wane a bit and maybe you're getting into the body of the story a little more and it's a little more about the events and a little less about the theatre, well, then you need to change something about your communication style. And maybe that's when you can turn to an exhibit and show them a, a photograph of the scene or the weapon or a physical exhibit like the weapon, you know, produce the knife that was used to commit the offence, something like that, so that then they shift their information gathering technique from being purely oral to then being visual. And so it brings them back in the room again. All of these things might be very sort of negligible in terms of their overall impact, but it still changes for me. It still changes the way that the communication is happening. And again, in my view, keeps them engaged, keeps them interested. And if they're interested and engaged in the story that you're telling, well, then they're more likely to do what you want them to do in the end. Do you have an example for something that you could say at the beginning? And this, of course, isn't for everyone to start saying it at the beginning of this features, but anything you can offer? The trials that I do are usually murder trials. So I suppose it's easy, um, easier to find something sexy, something engaging about, um, about the start of a trial. But let me share with you an opening address that I did. So it's a little more than three or four lines, but I'm sure you'll get the gist of what I was trying to achieve. Go for it. Shortly after 10am on the morning of the 16th of March 2014, the body of Alexis Jeffrey was discovered by Adam Phillips as he and his son were making their way along the McIntyre River in Gundawindi. They'd set out to go fishing that morning when they made the grisly discovery of Alexis on the bank. She was virtually naked. Naked except for a bra that was pulled up so as to expose her breasts. She was lying on her back. One of her hands was dangling in the water of the river. It was obvious that she had significant injuries to her head, to her face and to her neck. It was obvious that she was dead. Triple O was called and emergency services came, but there was nothing that could be done for Alexis. It was clear that she was dead. This trial is about who did that to her. And in particular, was it Robert Trebek who did that to Alexis Jeffrey? And then I went on and started telling the story of the events. So by setting the scene in terms of the grisly discovery of the deceased on the bank of the river, I guess like those, the first couple of minutes of those crime shows that we see all too frequently on television, even before the credits roll, there's a short sequence, a couple of minutes of some aspect of the story, some event that is designed to get you in and get your attention. And so that's what I was trying to achieve by setting the scene in that way with um, poor Alexis on the bank of the McIntyre River in Gundawindi. He was convicted, by the way. <laughs> he was convicted. He was convicted. <laughs> Wow, that is interesting. I want to know what happened at the end. Um, 
that's really incredibly helpful advice in terms of getting someone's attention. And I also think that for civil practitioners or any other area, you really can bring that in and make it interesting for whatever tribunal. I think that's right. If you put some effort into actually finding the story in your case and then trying to lead with that, no matter how mundane, and look, some, some matters aren't going to be necessarily mundane, but they'll be ever so slightly less mundane if you put some effort into actually telling the story of your case. And I think it is such a wasted opportunity when advocates rise to their feet and they, they lead with, as His Honour has just told you, my name's Carl Heaton and I'm the Crown Prosecutor, so I'm going to um, tell you now about what this trial is about and what evidence is that I expect that you'll hear called during the course of this trial. Like already, at that point, I'm bored and I'm sure a jury would be too, and particularly bearing in mind that they've just sat through 45 minutes of the judge giving them all of that sort of formal stuff. Dispense with it, tell the story, rise to your feet and grab their attention right from the beginning. That's my advice to people. I suppose what I would like to know, and I've been dying to know since I met you, um, <laughs> was um, because you had done a demonstration of, um, I think it was, I can't remember, it, it was an address of some kind, either an opening or a closing. It was an opening, yeah. It was an opening, and I was engaged throughout. You sounded very conversational. You were very relaxed. The tone changed, the pitch changed, the volume changed. It was all really very interesting. And I was just wondering if you had any tips for our listeners about how you sound natural and conversational so that people can be engaged instead of stiff. And I'm... Well, it sounds like it's being read out and it's completely boring. So how do you do that? Well, firstly, thank you. Secondly, it's interesting that you say that I appeared to be totally relaxed because I was anything but relaxed in that environment. That's the first time that I've taught at that workshop. And you might recall that my presentation was the first event that happened at that workshop. So I was in a room full of a whole bunch of advocacy trainers and silks from around Australia and in a room full of um, barristers of varying levels of experience and seniority. And, you know, for me, I think we talked about the inner saboteur, that imposter syndrome that I think we all suffer from and I certainly do as well. But the antidote for that is to prepare and to prepare and to prepare again. And you made an interesting point, which is, again, I, th I think something that I see done far too frequently and with good advocacy being the poorer for it, and that is people reading out what they want to say to the jury. There is no, I think, greater barrier to effective communication than standing in front of an audience and reading reading to them. And you might try and do the news rate, newsreader style of thing of um, sort of looking up every now and again, but there's still that barrier, and I think it's still obvious to a jury that, or to an audience, that you're not actually talking to them, you're just reading off 
off a page. And so the technique that I promote people to try is to put their notes to one side or be more disciplined in how they prepare their notes, use dot points rather than a verbatim script. And I encourage people to have the confidence to do that. And certainly in opening addresses, you know, just focusing on that because that's what we're talking about. By the time you rise to your feet, you know that case, you know it through and through. And you've just got to have the confidence to, in yourself, you've got to shut that inner saboteur that's sitting on your shoulder telling you this is the day you're going to get caught out and that you're a fraud and you don't know what you're doing. Shut that inner saboteur up and just have the confidence that you do know what the case is about. In that trial that I just shared the opening couple of remarks uh, with you, uh, in that trial, it, my opening went for about an hour and a half and it was all done from memory. I just stood there and talked to the jury because I knew that case. I'd been preparing it for weeks and perhaps months. I knew the case. But then I got to a point in the story and then I realised that I'd left out a bit. But the way I dealt with that was to stop. And I looked at the jury and I said, I've left a bit out. And I said, that'll teach me for trying to do all of this off the top of my head. And I said, I need to take you back. And so I just fessed up and, you know, it's, it's, there's no harm in doing so. The jury, the jury want to be on this journey with you. They, wa they want to be engaged. They're, they're interested. They're participating in a, in a trial. There's no reason to essentially sort of step out of the theatre of the trial and talk to the audience as an actor, perhaps, rather than um, as a character and just let them know some of the mechanics of what's going on in the trial. And so I told them the bit that I'd missed out and I explained how they had to try and put that into the, that part, fit it into the story. And then we went back to where we were at with the story and, I, and then I was able to keep going. So I think it's vitally important if you're going to effectively communicate with a jury that you need to talk to them. You need to maintain eye contact, you need to engage with them, and you can't do that if you're reading. And so above all else, when you're practicing for your performance, you need to put your notes to one side, have the confidence that you know your case, and talk to the jury. That's just so important. And two things arise for me after that. Firstly, is by sharing with the jury that, oh, I missed something out, it also lends you even more credibility because they see you as someone honest Absolutely. and put your hand up. Absolutely. And the other thing you said was practicing. Is that something that you do? Do you practice your speeches? Because I know for me, a lot of the time, the first time that I'm saying it is the first time that I'm saying it in court, which I don't necessarily think is the best thing. So how do you manage that? We need to recognise that the pressures of a busy practice don't always provide the opportunity to practice your performance. But it should always be on the agenda and it should be something that you prioritise and don't overlook the importance of actually practising what you're going to say and how you're going to say it. And I think that's because something that sounds really impressive inside your head may not be quite so impressive 
when you go through the discipline of forming sentences using English words and then say it out loud. So it helps you to crystallise your thoughts into actually something that is able to be communicated. But I think sounding out your arguments with other people helps to identify where the flaws are in your in your argument. You might be so wound up in your caught up in your case that you can't see an obvious alternative explanation. And so just testing that on your friends or on your family is a very effective way of of testing your arguments before you get into court and before you start delivering them. One morning, um, a colleague of mine who's at the defence bar, um, well, I'd gone out for a walk and I was sitting on the edge of the river, like I was having a coffee, and he walked past, obviously on his way to work, and it was quite obvious that he was talking to himself. He was talking in his mind, but he was forming words. So he's walking along and he looked a little bit like a crazy person and he was gesticulating with his hands. But it was really obvious to me that he was talking through his arguments. Whatever it was he was going off to court to do that day, he was actually working on it as he was walking to work that day. Which is a lesson, I think, in the fact that there are more opportunities for us to practice our performance than we might ordinarily think. I went away for a weekend once when I was in the middle of a trial and I was going to be um, closing, making my closing address on Monday and and we went away for the weekend and we had to drive for five hours and those five hours were spent me talking about my trial and my arguments and sounding them out and being challenged about them and it was a very important process for me in working out what was and what wasn't going to be effective in my arguments. So in answer to your question, yes, I think it is very important to practice. Practice your performance, to say your, form your ideas into words and into sentences and better still um, actually communicate them to another person and have them give you some feedback. Thank you. And um, my partner, I'm sure, is going to be thanking you for what I'm now going to start doing, (laughs) (laughs) which is practising. And this does draw us to um, the end of the interview, but I do have my final question for you, which is, out of all of the golden nuggets that you have given us during this interview, which have been amazing, Mm. what are the three practical tips that you would give listeners for improving their advocacy? In terms of takeaway messages, I think, firstly, it's important to recognise that everything that you do in the courtroom is an opportunity to persuade. No matter how innocuous it might be, it's an opportunity for you to say something to the jury and everything you do should be analysed from the point of view of what it is that that it says to the ultimate fact finder, whether it's a judge or a jury, but what it says about you as an advocate and about your arguments and the outcome that you're advocating for. And so it's, it's I think, vitally important to give thought to that as part of your 
preparation and your just general conduct in the trial. As a second takeaway, I think I'll go back to the opening couple of lines, that opening attention grabbing, however you want to describe it, but giving some thought to how you're going to, the actual words you're going to say and that are designed to grab the attention of the jury and get them engaged and listening when you first rise to your feet. That don't waste that opportunity. And a third practical tip, know your rules of evidence. <laughs> Crucial. I suppose if you've got the process under control, well then you can focus on the advocacy. And the advocacy is where you will win or lose your cases. And so, you know, it goes without saying, we need to know what the law is, we need to know what the court procedures are, we need to be all over all of that in order for us to be better advocates because only then, if you've got all of that under control, will you with your anxiety levels be low enough to enable you to let your personality come through and your style come through in the way that you then communicate with the fact finder. You know, you described me in, in my opening presentation at the workshop in Melbourne as being relaxed and being very conversational. I work on that. That is the product of, of work. So thank you. I'm glad it's working. <laughs> Where could our listeners connect with you online? I'm happy for people to email me. Um, my email address is carl.heaton at justice.qld.gov.au. So if people have got any questions or want any tips or advice or want to share stories, I'm happy to answer any inquiries. Thank you so much. And thank you for being on the podcast. It has been brilliant experience for me and I'm sure all the listeners from all the incredibly helpful insightful golden nuggets that you have shared with us today so thank you very much it's my pleasure thank you thank you for listening to the advocacy podcast journeys to excellence if you enjoyed the episode please subscribe and visit us at theadvocacypodcast.com for reading lists and other resources until next time